what every blessing to you all and welcome back to a very bitterly cold open air pulpit the last time we uh, were looking through Genesis we arrived at chapter 37 and therefore let's continue today if we may from a very windy and uh, cold open air pulpit from Genesis 38 and it came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Herah. So first of all Judah is on the move. Last time we looked at Judah being able to rescue Joseph and within just one chapter he has if you will fallen from grace and it speaks about leaving his brethren which if you think about David uh, concerning the uh, Bathsheba incident it speaks about kings going forth to war and David staying back and of course you know the rest look at verse 2 please and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua and he took her and went in unto her so you are to assume that a marriage took place you are to assume that rings exchanged hands you are to assume that a pastor or a vicar somebody who was religious was present to marry Judah to Shua and yet the truth of the matter is this that weddings in the Old Testament were nearly always uh, simply in reference to a man meeting a woman going in to her and after doing so would consummate the marriage if you think of the New Testament please excuse the, sni uh, the uh, sniffing if you think of the New Testament if you think of marriages today you will struggle you will struggle to find a marriage clearly defined in the New Testament a lot of stuff going back and forth online between Anderson and Hovind concerning what is a marriage and it would seem to me that Hovind just lost my place is arguing for more of a civil marriage like uh, a person living with someone else and Anderson is suggesting that some kind of a marriage certificate is necessary of course I appreciate both views but when it comes to the scripture which is our ultimate authority and when it comes to the New Testament like the Apostle Paul writing to the Gentiles concerning the gospel of the grace of God you will struggle you will struggle to find exactly how a first century Gentile Christian was supposed to be married I'm not against a man meeting a woman both saved of course going to a place of reception having a pastor or a religious chap who knows them personally performing the marriage but strictly speaking is such even scriptural I'm not particularly sure that it is back in the Old Testament you had a feast you had a party <coughs> of some kind you had a gathering and it was suggested and it has been suggested by some uh, some people that people back in the day would say I'm gonna marry such and such and a ceremony took place and maybe I'll discuss that as we go through it three and she conceived and bare a son and he called his name Ur and she conceived again and bare a son and she called his name Onan so Judah names his firstborn and Shua 
uh, Judah's wife gets to name their second son. Five, and she yet again conceived and bare a son and called his name Shelah. So, three sons born to a Canaanite woman, Judah is the father of three sons and like I say Judah in the previous chapter 37 has rescued Joseph and yet here jo uh, Judah is about to if you will fall from grace or look at it this way Judas betrays Jesus Judah betrays Jacob six and Judah took a wife for her his firstborn whose name was Tamar. Tamar is found in Matthew chapter 1, Christ's genealogy. And it's always uh, good to know that sinful people like you, like myself, can read scripture such as this and relate to wicked, immoral people. Never take yourself too seriously. I know the Calvinists, like the Lordship Salvation people, like to offer themselves as being very righteous, very sinless like Paul Washer and yet to the truth be known they are no different to you and I they have their own sin problems in fact to the truth be known I would suggest this that those that preach about holiness the most are probably the least seven and uh Judas firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord slew him there's something about the firstborns in Genesis that are no good like Cain no good and here Judas firstborn is wicked in the sights of the Lord we're not told exactly why he was wicked or what he did wrong but the Lord took a look at this guy and said no good rotten to the core and Almighty God has killed him and Judas said unto Onan go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother your brother's just died, his wife is now a widow, Judah wants his second son to do the right thing, which shows the complexity of biblical greats, the good and the great. One moment, like I say, Judah is a good boy, saving Joseph, a type of Christ, and within one chapter he's fallen from grace, he's yoked up with the wrong type of woman, he's lost his first son, and yet he wants to take care of his daughter-in-law. Nine. And only knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass when he went in unto his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground. Lest that he should give seed to his brother. Most commentaries, most commentators, again going back to the holiness people. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against holiness. The Bible says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. But we have to get these verses into context. You will never be holy in of yourself. You will, ne you will never live above sin all of the time. There's no excuse to sin. We sin because we choose to sin. Okay, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not, you know, dismiss or discard some of these scriptures. If we sin, we should confess our sins. And yet, at the same time, Paul would say he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. But if you look at most commentaries concerning verse 9, they will suggest that the 
context here is masturbation and it's not. The context here is premature, uh, premature ejaculation. And what's really going on here is number two son, probably hated number one son, you've got some sort of uh, rivalry going on, a typical theme in scripture, and number two son doesn't want to do something for number one son, and he doesn't want to uh, allow his seed to impregnate his sister-in-law, and by doing so allow the memory of his brother to live on. Look at verse 10, please. And a thing which he did displease the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Two sons cut down dead by the Lord. Not in reference to masturbation, like I say, but more in reference to premature ejaculation, more in reference to not wanting to give his sister-in-law an inheritance. He was quite happy to leave her hanging. A wicked thing to do. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house, till she and my son be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. He's thinking this, well I've lost two sons. I wonder if perhaps Tamar is wicked. I wonder if she is perhaps cursed. I don't want to lose my third son. And therefore I will buy time. Now, I think it's fair to say that Judah had no intention of allowing his third son, uh, Sheila, to marry Tamar. So therefore he's trying to buy time. He's hoping that perhaps she will meet somebody else, marry somebody else, and it won't be his problem. Jump down to verse 13, please. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth to Timnath to shear his sheep, and she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which is by the way to Tim, uh, Timnath for she, saw, for she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him to a wife she's waited long enough she's fed up with waiting she's thinking to herself you know where's my inheritance I've been just left hanging and now she wants to plan about what needs to be done she wants to make some plans and here she is sitting in a window if you think of those in holland like the red like red light district that sell themselves and those people referred to as prostitutes or toms in the uk are able to make a living from sad people sad men that go in and pay women to provide a service. And yet, let me say this quickly. And yes, it's bitterly cold. It's uh, zero degrees Celsius. And with the wind chill, it feels like minus three. I read an interview a few days ago, a very interesting interview of a woman who was hooked on pornography for 10 years. And she said she was able to beat the addiction through her husband and yoga of all things which reminds me of another article i read some years ago which suggested that a good number of women not just men but a good number of women are hooked on pornography and yes you can get victory over it not through yoga but through the blood of christ verse 15 please when judah saw her he thought her to be an harlot 
because she had covered a face. And he turned unto her by the way and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she, and she said, What wilt thou give me that thou mayest come in unto me? No such thing as free love, as they say. And here this woman, his daughter-in-law, has become a whore. She wants to trap him. And it shows again how quickly things can go wrong. We don't know whether or not Tamar was saved. What we do know is that she's in the line of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1. We don't even know if Judah was saved. It could be, if you think of Revelation chapter 4, which speaks about the 24 elders, and I made the suggestion during my study through Revelation that 12 of the 24 could be the 12 sons of Jacob, which, if that's the case, they are saved, and the other 12 could be the apostles of the Lamb, and of course they were certainly saved. But we don't know whether or not Judah was saved, and nor do we know if Tamar was saved. But here, he's seen her, she has seen him, <coughs> and she wants to know what he will give her. 17. And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge till thou send it? It's like bartering. She wants something to be given to her. She won't allow him just to go in and sleep with her for nothing. Going back to those in Holland, the red light district and people like that they won't sell themselves for nothing and yet i saw a documentary maybe three or four months ago of prostitutes in i think it was brazil or chile and they were selling themselves for i think five dollars ten dollars shameful 18 and he said what pledge shall i give thee and she said, Thy signets and thy bracelets, and thy staff that is in thine hand. And he gave it unto her, and came unto her, and she conceived by him. No marriage took place. Flesh meets flesh. And also note what Judah is wearing. Signet bracelets, and a staff, a stick that is in thine hand. He's wearing bracelets. It does intrigue me sometimes when I look back through scripture and history in general how effeminate men could be. Some men would dress almost like women and here Judah has bracelets which for the day is very effeminate. 19 and she arose and went away and laid by her veil from her and put on the garments of a widowhood, widowhood excuse me widowhood widowhood so he's got her pregnant she knows that he's her father-in-law she doesn't know or he doesn't know that she's his daughter-in-law which is reminiscent of the lot uh, incident when his daughters got him drunk they knew that if he hadn't been intoxicated he wouldn't have slept with his daughters which suggests he wasn't that wicked I've heard people make a lot of noise about that incident, saying that he was some sort of a pervert. He wasn't a pervert. His daughters had been corrupted by their environment, and they thought that the entire human race had been destroyed, hence why they get their father drunk. And here, Tamar is with child. Jump down to verse uh, 24. And it came to pass about three months after 
that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot. And also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. He was so quick, so pious, so righteous, which again goes back to certain preachers, certain holiness preachers who preach a very hard message, which they don't live themselves, and then they get caught up in some type of a scandal, and they have to backpedal. They preach for years that you can lose your salvation, and they preach certain sins can't be forgiven after somebody commits them, and then lo and behold, they get caught in a scandal like Jim Baker or Jimmy Swaggett or other dubious characters such as those guys and they surprise surprise bounce back they don't resign the ministry I know Ted Haggard did but most don't most hang in there and most are able to continue to make a living but here Judah wants her to be burnt with fire because as far as he is aware she has become pregnant via some uh, third party he doesn't know that it's his own child and like I say, he's very quick to judge her. Going back to John 8, Jesus would say, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. 25. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said to Stern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet, the bracelets, and the staff. No abortion. She could have had an abortion. She decided not to do so, which is always a good thing, of course. And here she's got him banged to rights. Exhibit A, ex uh, Exhibit B, ex Exhibit C. Exhibit A concerning the signet, Exhibit B concerning the bracelets, and Exhibit C concerning the staff. She's got him banged to rights. And he knows in five seconds that he's the guilty <coughs> party here. He's got his daughter-in-law pregnant. And again, it, it constitutes a marriage from the standpoint of Scripture. I'm not against, one more time, a man and a woman being married by a pastor, a religious chap, uh, and getting a marriage ceremony, or a marriage certificate, I should say, from the local council. I'm not against that. But the thing is this, is it scriptural? Is it scriptural for God's people to go to the secular authorities and ask them to issue a marriage license, a marriage certificate. Is it biblical to get an unsaved man or an unsaved woman to marry two saved people called a registrar, a registrar, <laughs> I can't speak today, a registrar in the UK? Is it legal? Is it scriptural from the standpoint of the Lord? The Word of God says that we are to submit to the powers that be. Absolutely. And that's why when you think of what Hovind is coming out with and what Anderson is coming out with and other people offering their thoughts and both are making interesting uh, thoughts but you have to weigh it all up. What does the Word of God say? Can you show me any verse in the New Testament concerning what a Gentile Christian would have to go through? What does a marriage look like in the New Testament for Gentiles? answer we're not told so therefore we have to assume that the early church the gentile wing of the early church when they got married and of course they would have been married would have followed the old testament model 
which would probably have involved some kind of a feast, some kind of a marriage uh, ceremony. But somebody standing up saying, by the powers invested in me, I now declare you husband and wife. That's not scriptural. I can't find it in the scripture. And the exchanging of rings, it's not scriptural. It's actually pagan. It goes back to the time of the Romans. I'm not against a wedding ring. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against it. But I'm asking the question, I'm begging the question from, from a bitterly cold pulpit. <clears throat> Is it scriptural? And if it's not scriptural, why are we doing it? And if it's not scriptural, why are we endorsing it? And here, he wants uh, burnt with fire, which would uh, be a part of the Mosaic Covenant, especially concerning a priest's daughter who was immoral. But here, 25, she's got him banged to rights. Exhibit A, B and C, 26. And Judah acknowledged them and said, she hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not to Sheila my son. And he knew her not, again no more he knew again no more so he reluctantly he reluctantly comes clean he must have been humiliated he's standing in the presence of his peers number one he knows that this is his daughter number two he knows he's got her pregnant and number two she's got him banged to rights and what does also interest me is that the elders didn't say well judah we're going to put you to death anyway because you are the guilty party here which goes back to other parts of the Old Testament, where the Lord, excuse me, where the law of the Lord, where the law of the Lord was broken and it wasn't enforced. Which would suggest that the Lord allowed his people to use or to enjoy some level of uh, discretion. So no death for Judah, no death for Tamar. And Again, this highlights the reality that God's people can err, they can mess up. Was Judah saved? Who knows? If he was, or if the 24 elders, Revelation 4, is in reference to uh, the apostles and the children of Israel, being the 12 sons of Jacob, then he was saved. Wicked like you and I, deceptive like you and I, not a particularly nice chap like you and I and if our salvation depends on our conduct if our salvation depends on our character then rule me out I will say quite clearly and I'm not ashamed to say this that if I or if my service if my character if my conduct is what will get me into heaven then I won't be going to heaven when I die I'm not a just man I'm not a good man I know my faults, I know my flaws, I'm no good, I never have been. But I understand one thing, if nothing else, that I am saved by the blood of the Lamb. John the Baptist would say, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And if you are believing in that, if you are trusting in that, you are saved. But if you are trusting in your conduct or your character, like the Lordship Salvation people preach about, then may I suggest you're not going to heaven because you can't offer the Lord anything. Going back to my New Year's Day message, he's got everything anyway. 
You can't give him anything. It's only after you are saved can you give him your heart, your soul, and your life. 39.1, please. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Pontifer, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian brought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. So poor old Joseph, a type of Christ, hated by his brethren, like Jesus Christ, hated by his brethren, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and yes, they were brethren. They were all Jewish men. And he has, he has been hated, he's been despised by his brethren. Judah has saved his life. And the compromise, or the way to get around this problem, this hatred of Joseph, was to sell him on to the Ishmaelites, modern-day Mohammedans. Two. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. He's in good company. And somehow, some way, Romans 8.28 is very much taking place here. Joseph must have thought his life was coming to an end. He must have thought to himself this, but I've been shown future visions. I've seen my family in submission to me. I was promised great things. And again, please excuse the sniffing. What's going on here? Why am I a slave, a servant to this pagan captain? And yet three again. And his master saw that the Lord is with him and the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Almighty God said he would never leave you nor forsake you. And here, concerning Joseph, that is exactly what is taking place. Verse 4, And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house. And all that he had, he put into his hand. So Joseph, to his surprise, has arrived in a good home. It could have gone one or two ways. He could have become uh, like a sex slave. And yes, such still takes place in the Middle East. But the Lord preserved Joseph. Unlike Daniel, who we believe uh, was uh, castrated and became a eunuch, during his time in captivity, Joseph wasn't put through that. Joseph would be spared that. Five, and it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. So Joseph is doing okay. He's comfortable by today's standards. He's got a good boss over him. He's also very privileged for a Hebrew pre the law to arrive to such a level of preeminence was unheard of. And here, uh, those in the house of Pontifer are also blessed as a result of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord would spill over to those that Joseph was uh, connected to. Six, and he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he knew not 
aught he had save the bread which he did eat, and Joseph was a goodly person, and well favoured. When I look at verse 6, and it says it again, and he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, complete trust in him, and he knew not aught he had save the bread which he did eat. I think of an account that made the news probably 10 years ago concerning Sting. And Sting is a British musician, a very wealthy musician, was being ripped off by his accountant and Sting, a multi-millionaire, one of Britain's most famous uh, artists going back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, had a guy working for him and he was stealing from Sting and he stole seven, eight million pounds and Sting wasn't even aware of it, can you believe? And he went to court and I seem to recall that the accountant got several years in jail. The point is this, that Sting had faith in his accountant. Sting believed in his accountant. And the word of God says, don't put your faith in the Son of Man, a term for mankind in general. It says over in John chapter 2 that the Lord didn't trust man, he knew what was in man, and wouldn't need man or men to testify of him, because none of us are any good, going back to character and conduct. And it must have been a shock for Sting to be made aware that his accountant had been stealing from him. Contrast that to Joseph. That would be the last thing on Joseph's mind. Seven. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. And she said, lie with me. Here we go. You've got two guys. You've got Judah. Who would fail? You've got Joseph who would not fail. You've got Daniel who would be successful. You've got David who would fail. You take the time to profile any of the Old Testament greats and within a few minutes you will discover how these guys would handle any given situation. I'm currently working my way through Exodus for our Lord's Day morning and please join me this coming Sunday when I return to Exodus chapter 1. Just allow me to say this very quickly and I'll get back to this in a moment that my plan had been to just record the Ten Commandments but the more I was reading Exodus in preparation for last Sunday's brand new Bible study uh, of the year the more I thought to myself this just do the whole book there's so much good stuff in there and therefore by the grace of God uh, I have begun probably an 18 month to two-year study working through Exodus and I'm already profiling Moses, I'm already profiling Aaron. And I'll discuss both of those two gentlemen in the coming weeks. But here, Joseph has come into contact with Pontifer's wife. And most, comment, uh, most commentaries, most commentators will say that she was a beautiful woman and he was able to resist her charms. He was able to reduce, uh, he was able to... Uh, uh, not be seduced he was able to withstand her seduction and here's the thing it could just be it could just be that she wasn't all that beautiful anyway and therefore he was able to just pass her up 
And yeah, I won't go with the uh, historical line or the overall consensus that she was a beautiful woman and Joseph was able to withstand her advances, her uh, seduction, and of course that enhances uh, Joseph's reputation and also gives Almighty God greater glory. I won't, or I don't want to play that down. Back in the 17th century, the Jesuits were sent to Japan. And those guys, the great seducers of a Bible believer, or Bible believers in general, Protestants really, have been seducing Christians for centuries, have done a lot of damage to Christians. It has been suggested also by some writers that guys like Baker and Swaggett fell as a result of Jesuits setting up honey traps. Who knows? But those Jesuits arrived in Japan, 17th, 18th century, and converted 300,000 over to Catholicism. And the Japanese warlords thought to themselves this, we've got a problem. If we don't deal with those Jesuit priests, the entire country will become Catholic. And they started to plan and plot, and they were able to seduce these seducers and those Jesuit gentlemen a good number of them not only turned their backs on Catholicism but would marry Japanese women and remain in Japan until their deaths that isn't really so well known in Jesuit circles the Catholic Church are very quick to make saints of their sons and applaud the Jesuits for what they have done over the last two, three, four, five hundred years or thereabouts and rarely if ever discuss how the uh, great seducers of Protestantism how they were able to be seduced by Japanese women you reap what you sow or as they say what goes around comes around and she said seven lie with me Joseph Come on in, lie with me. Judah was put to the test and failed. David was put to the test and failed. Daniel, well, we believe he was a eunuch. We believe he was castrated. And yet, it's probably fair to say, had he been put to the test, wouldn't have failed. And here, Joseph has been put to the test and doesn't fail. Verse 8, but he refused. And said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master, what is not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Sin against God. Muslims don't believe that. Muslims don't believe that somebody anybody anywhere can ever sin against God but the Bible says you can sin against God David would say that he'd sinned against God concerning the Bathsheba incident not just sleeping with her but ordering the death the murder of her husband and that I think is what really grieved David when that was brought to his attention when Nathan said thou art the man and he said to David the Lord has put your sin away from 
from you. You should be put to death for what you've done. And yet going back to Judah and Tamar and David and Bathsheba, the Lord showed discretion. Feeding back one more time to John chapter 8 concerning the woman caught in adultery. And it came to pass, verse 10, as he spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. He had great willpower. I mean, even if she wasn't a beauty, to have a woman throw herself at Joseph day after day, he is a long way from home. He is late teens, early 20s. He's struggling. He's living amongst non-Hebrews to be put to the test day by day and to say no is remarkable and it puts Joseph in a great light and it came to pass verse 11 about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business and there was none of the men of the house there within so she thinks this finally I've got Joseph all to myself and we are to assume that Joseph was a good-looking guy. We are to assume that she was a good-looking woman. We are to assume that had both parties wanted to do what was on offer, like Judah and Tamar, that it could have taken place. Nobody would have seen it. Nobody would have been aware of it. And apart from uh, Pontifer, who else would have cared? And she caught him by his garments, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garments in her hand and fled out, and fled and got him out, like he ran for the hills. And it came to pass, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of the house, and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass, when he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. That term, a Hebrew, is used as a, as a racial slur. And here she is shooting her mouth off. She realises that he has no interest in her, never had, never would have. And she feels humiliated. She knows that what has now taken place has really made her look somewhat of a fool. And she wants her servants to be aware of her humiliation. And he continues on. 16. And she laid up his garments by her until his Lord came home. So she is furious. She is humiliated. 17. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew sought, excuse me, the Hebrew servant, the Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garments with me and fled out. She blames Joseph, and she's saying, It's all your fault, my dear husband. You brought this Hebrew man into our home. He's tried to rape me. It's all your fault. 19 and it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife which he spake unto him saying after his manner did thy servant to me that his wrath was kindled 
I think a couple of things. I think number one, that his wife had form, meaning this, I think she was a loose woman. I think she was known to be promiscuous. I think he knew his wife back to France and I think he knew Joseph pretty well as well. And he thought this, he thought, well, my wife is my wife. I can't lose face. I've got my peers to think about. All of my servants have been made aware of what she is alleging, alleging has taken place. I know, jo I know Joseph is a straight man. I know Joseph is a good man. What can I do? Now, he had the power to have Joseph executed. He doesn't do that. Yes, he could have shunned his wife. He could have put her on the spot, but that would have looked bad on him in the eyes of his peers and his servants. 20. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison. I think he wants to buy time. I think he wants to buy himself some time. He wants to see how this could go. He wants to perhaps allow his wife uh, time to come clean, which of course she won't do. He also believes that the Lord will take care of Joseph. 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So Joseph thinks this, he thinks, number one, I've been rejected by my brethren, like Jesus was rejected by his brethren. I've been sold into slavery, like Jesus would be sold indirectly to uh, Pilate and Herod. And Pilate and Herod had authority over Christ. The Ishmaelites, the Gentiles leading up to Pontifer, uh, had ownership of Joseph. He thinks, could it get any worse? And now I've been put into prison. I could die here if I'm not careful. But the Lord was with Joseph. And it speaks about Jesus being called Emmanuel, like God with us. And the keeper of the prison, verse 22, committed to Joseph's hand, or the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was a doer of it. He's in jail, and he's got responsibilities, he's got privileges. He's not chained up 18 hours a day like some, like some prisoners are around the world. And by the grace of God, all will come good. In a way that we don't quite understand, Romans 8.28 is working in the background. If you think of Hitler, who found himself in jail, 1920s, I forget the exact date, and during his time in jail, he had a good time. He was there with Hess and some other people. And not only did he have a good time in jail, people could come and visit him, a bit like Paul would enjoy, back end of Acts 28, but during Hitler's time in jail, he wrote his book, Mein Kampf, and he wrote it uh, with the help of a Jesuit priest. And yes, these Jesuits are everywhere. In fact, the uh, awful book, the uh, Protocol of the Elders of Zion, has been... Uh, used to attack the Jews over the years.
But that book was also written by a Jesuit to smear the Jews. 23. The keep of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Around 12 times it speaks about the Lord being with Joseph. I mean, talk about never leaving him nor forsaking him. But I think of Joseph in prison, having responsibility, privileges, not suffering like he could have suffered. And I think of people like Hitler, like I say, writing Mein Kampf in his uh, German jail. Nobody stopped him having friends to visit him. I think of David Irving, a British historian, very controversial, who was held in a jail in uh, Austria. Not all that long ago, and during his detention in a jail in Austria, uh, he wrote a book or two. And he said that it wasn't too bad for him. Look at Mandela. He goes into a jail in South Africa for over 20 years, and he's got all his friends around him. But here, Joseph is in prison, and it could have got pretty heavy for him. He could have been killed. A lot of people in prison are terrified to go to prison and when they find themselves in prison they suffer terribly there have been many accounts of paedophile priests paedophile catholic priests in america that have got their uh, their comeuppance and rightly so and they've gone into these jails in america and have been murdered by fellow inmates which i'm not endorsing i'm not condoning uh that type of thing but most people in jail, most men in jail, most women in jail in any part of the world hate it and are terrified of it. And yet Joseph has been preserved. He's been uh, taken care of. Still very cold. Chapter 40, verse 1, please. And it came to pass after these things that the battle of the king of Egypt... And his baker had offered, excuse me, had offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was wroth against two of his officers, against the chief of the butlers, and against the chief of the bakers. And he put them inward in the house of the captain of the guard, into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. How the mighty fall. We've had some guys in the UK that have fallen foul of the law we've had government ministers we've had two governments two conservative government ministers a guy called archer and a guy called aitken in their day very powerful full foul of the law and were sent to jail for a period of time and here you've got the uh chief butler and one of the uh, officers of Pharaoh falling foul of him and they've been thrown into jail and here they are arriving with Joseph. How the mighty fool. Eight. And they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. Humble man. 
he could have said former Q gentlemen I would charge you X amount for my services that's not what he would say that's not what he would do he quite rightly credits the Lord as the interpreter of all dreams one of my projects for this year is to write about King James I've already begun uh, researching him and I've already finished reading a book about King James a very interesting character and I read about one interesting account of a witch who had fallen foul of the leaders in Lancashire and there was a witch uh, trial and James wanted to speak to one of the witches and she was brought to meet the king and she said to King James about a vision or something which she was aware of concerning a conversation that King James had experienced with his wife Anne and James said to this witch how could you possibly know about this conversation that I had with my wife even the devil doesn't know about such a conversation and he was shocked he was shocked at what she knew he was shocked at the accuracy the accuracy as to what she knew and she knew it because either the Lord had shown it to her or the devil had shown it to her and that really whet the appetite of King James when it came to witches and witchcraft specifically 14 but think on me when it shall be well with thee and show kindness I pray thee unto me and make mention of me unto Pharaoh and bring me out of this house for indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews and here also have I done nothing that they should put me into this dungeon I want out of this place no suggestion either of Joseph being content to be in this place which he refers to as a dungeon and Joseph of course is a great type of Jesus Joseph was put into prison a jail a dungeon like under the ground Jesus Christ was held all night in a dungeon style or dungeon type of a place you can be sure that there were other people probably detained in a in, a, in, a, in the proximity near to where Christ was being detained by Pilate and Herod and here you've got Pharaoh having two men under his control and they are having dreams Joseph is hearing about the dreams and Joseph is interpreting the dreams and verses such as 9 10 11 12 and 13 have been suggested by some commentators to be pictures prophecies of the communion service of the Lord the bread and the wine but here Joseph wants out and he hopes that by helping these two uh, lieutenants of Pharaoh that they will speak well of him and yet to his horror 23 yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph but forget uh, but forget him totally forgot Joseph totally overlooked Joseph Joseph will uh, be able to make it out down the line but 
first and foremost, the moment he comes through for these two gentlemen, the moment he speaks up for these two gentlemen, the moment he explains their dreams, their visions uh, to those two chaps, they turn their backs on him. Be like the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. It says how they all left him, apart from John, uh, the youngest of the apostles. So allow me to close this message and it's bitterly cold, but thankfully it's not snowing and thankfully it's not raining. So 38 deals with Judah meeting a woman. And again, please excuse the sniffing. She produces three sons to Judah. Two of the three are wicked. His daughter-in-law is left hanging. No inheritance. She's been pushed out, if you will. She's able to trick him. She's able to seduce him. He gets her pregnant. This becomes an issue. Uh, she doesn't have an abortion. The elders of the town uh, from 38.1, just outside of Hebron, uh, the Adam, uh, uh, Adolamite, uh, whose name was Hirar, I think it's about a mile or two outside of Hebron, didn't uh, order the execution of Judah and Tamar. He accepts responsibility. He is reluctant to come clean, but he can't get around it. She's banged him to rights, like I say. The uh, pledge from uh, 17 that he left her was really his undoing. I mean, a signet, bracelets and a staff. Those at New Judah would have known such belonged to him. And he's able to talk his way out of the situation, come clean. And the latter part of 26 says, and he knew her again no more no more sexual relations with her and yet if you think of David and Bathsheba they would stay together and have more children one of which was uh, Solomon who was greatly beloved 39 Joseph is on the way up he's got out of his initial bondage he's no longer the property of Ishmaelites that was pretty rough he finds himself in the home of an Egyptian captain to his wonderful surprise and great delight he fits in quite nicely he's got a lot of responsibility like I say he's a trusted man which is a great picture for Christians today concerning conduct and character don't get me wrong I'm not against uh, somebody who is saved having good conduct and a good character of course not but I'm not going to trust in my conduct or my character when it comes to pleasing Christ at the judgment seats of the Lord. Outside of the blood of the Lamb, I got no hope, and neither have you. And here he is serving uh, Pontifer, very respectful, like I say. He's got the checkbook, a bit like Judas would have with Jesus. <laughs> Excuse me. And, and uh, things are starting to look up. And yet, to his shock, uh, Pontifer's wife has clocked him. She's being eyeing him up. She thinks she can seduce him. She foolishly thinks that he wants to sleep with her. To her shock, humiliation, and fury, he would turn her down, unlike David and Bathsheba and other greats in the Old Testament. 
and she realizes that she's never going to have him and her love if it ever was love really was lust has now turned into fury she wants uh, Joseph punished for refusing her and uh, Pontifer for the first time in his life is really left with a difficult dilemma what do I do if I don't deal with this where to get around that my wife is loose promiscuous and if I don't uh, deal with it people will think I'm weak if I punish Joseph too much I know that I'm putting an innocent man to death like Pilate would do concerning Jesus he goes for the middle option in fact that term the middle way incidentally the middle option which is used in politics today came from King James and therefore he he opts for the third option the middle option and he puts Joseph into prison but the Lord is with him over 12 times the Lord is with Joseph he keeps him safe keeps him together body mind and spirit if you lose hope if you lose uh, joy if you lose energy or enthusiasm it's pretty much all over for you 40 1 2 and 3 couple of guys that worked for Pharaoh fell foul of Pharaoh were thrown into jail like Archer and Aitken and other well-known Brits over the years they are being tormented with dreams they're not really sure what's going on and the Lord is sending those dreams to such people in order for Joseph to shine and Joseph doesn't say well dreams or the interpretation of dreams belong to Holy Mother Church no he says that dreams the interpretation of dreams belong to God this Hebrew in jail late teens early 20s falsely accused of attempted rape was of the opinion that perhaps Almighty God had forsaken him and yet at his darkest hour his darkest day his darkest days he gives almighty god the glory 14 15 but think well on me whatever you do please don't leave me in this awful place i know that the lord is with me moses has told you this 14 or say 12 to 14 times so far joseph knows that the lord is somewhere in the background romans 8 28 but i mean talk about putting him through the mill slavery attempted rape jail time which could have been uh or could have resulted in capital punishment as far as joseph is concerned his days are numbered and he thinks to himself the best of my life has been and gone and yet again what god had shown him what god had done for him showing him future events never really left him but his faith was tested put it that way his faith was tested 15 again for indeed i was stolen away out of the land of the hebrews and he also have i done nothing that they should put me into the dungeon jesus could say the same sort of thing i've done nothing amiss i preached every day to you i was in the temple daily preaching and he never came for me then and here you are coming for me at three o'clock in the morning judas leading the men the temple guards and Jesus 
says to Judas and vicariously, those temple guards, whom do you seek? And they would say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he would say, I am. And they all fell backwards. And they get up. And uh, Peter grabs his sword, wants to take off the head of uh, one of the guards. God steps in, moves the sword from the head to the ear. The ear is sliced off. And the Lord puts it back on to the man's head. Shown, uh, shows mercy, shows uh, compassion, a bit like uh, Cromwell would do concerning Charles I. Yes, Charles I would be executed, but Cromwell wanted his uh, head sewn back on to its body, unlike Charles II, who ordered the corpse of Cromwell to be dug up and to have his head uh, decapitated and put on a pike. And here Joseph is hoping, praying, pleading uh, for his release. 23, one more time, and I'll close. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forget him. Forgot all about him, which is very typical of most of us today. We get saved and we start off with the Lord and we get some blessings coming our way. And if we're not careful, we forget about him. We take our eyes off him and we start to forget that he is our source of everything. He is the author and finisher of our faith. So please join me this coming Sunday as I return to Exodus chapter 1 in a much warmer and more comfortable environment. Keep me in prayer for the next 18 to 2 years, 18 months to 2 years, as I, end, as I, uh, as I attempt to uh, work through the book of Exodus. And I will continue to come up to the pulpit as cold as it is, and I must be insane to keep coming up to the open-air pulpit uh, in such bitterly cold weather. But this is my pulpit, and I want to finish Genesis. Some uh, preachers uh, prefer to preach in uh, warm environments. I would much rather come here. In fact, here's a little thought for you. When I think of some of the great preachers, in fact, when I think of all of the great preachers over the years that have recorded their sermons, their messages, they've all got one thing in common. And that one thing that they've all got in common is that all of their messages were given to church people in church buildings. I've never heard any message from any preacher that was done out in the open such as this. I'm not against preaching in nice warm places, don't get me wrong, but every message that I've ever heard from the greats has been recorded to church people in church buildings. I don't know of anybody who does what I do, going up to a place as barren and as bitter and as cold as such a place to do what I have done today and over the last eight years now and God willing the next eight years to come so there you are may the Lord bless you all and uh, thank you for bearing with me as I was sniffing and trying to read these passages wearing gloves gloves bible 
wind doesn't really go but uh, without the gloves my fingers would be bitterly cold so thank you for joining me and next time god willing we will uh, return and continue from genesis chapter 41 and may god bless you all in jesus name amen and amen